Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, July 19th, and it's time for another episode of The Pit, Politics in Trucking. Uh, We are going to open the phone lines today. I'd love to get some feedback from people. You know, The Pit, I spend a lot of time talking. Uh, I believe Stanford will be joining me today. Uh, John is busy today. I'd love to get some feedback from people. You know, there's there's a lot going on in politics right now. Uh, there's some big things we could tackle. There's a bunch of odds and ends and some small things we could tackle. But I, I'd really love to get some feedback from you as well. Um, so we're going to open the phone lines right now. And it's a political free-for-all. That means you can talk about any political topic you want. 855 855- Nine five zero three eight three five. Oh, all right. What do I want to start with while we're waiting on Stan? Stan's going to be uh, dialing in here in just a couple minutes, I think. Uh, so I don't really want to start on anything that I want him to comment on. So I'm looking through my stuff here to see what I've got. One of the things I'm going to be talking with Stan about quite a bit today, I think, um, Stan is a, is an attorney, very familiar with the law and procedures. So I asked him to do some research on AB5 and just kind of give me his thoughts. A lot of talk about AB5 in the industry right now because it's going to be um, extremely disruptive to the industry. The end, it's going to be disruptive to our supply chain, which is a big problem. Um, I just don't know what they're thinking when you know, they implement these laws that are just going to make things worse. Inflation, the supply chain issues are going to get worse. California, as much as we hate it sometimes with its horrendous politics, is a big, big part of our economy. It's a big part of our supply chain because of the ports. And we have so much trade with Asia And all of that trade comes into the West Coast ports, the big ones being in California. And they've been disrupted and backed up for over a year. And now we have big port protests going on. Um, Let's see what the latest on this is. Uh, This was from yesterday. Hundreds of trucks uh, protesting yesterday. They uh, claim they were going to be protesting again today. I didn't see any, um, haven't seen anything on that today, but uh, this is certainly going to have an impact. Um, Could actually have a pretty darn big impact on our supply chain. So definitely something we want to pay attention to. There, uh, there is still a possibility of a rail strike. Uh, I know the government's trying to step in and put the kibosh on that. But uh, if we have port protests going on and a rail strike, then the container 
segment is going to just get hammered, and so is our supply chain. Uh, A lot of goods move on containers, in containers, and we bring them across the ocean to the ports, and many of those containers then move out of the ports on the rail. Um, That's the whole reason we do containers, because we can put them on boats, we can put them on trains, we can put them on trucks. They're very efficient, but uh, they're not efficient if we can't move them through the system. And that's a big part of our supply chain issues right now. We can't move this stuff through the system. Uh, All right, I'm still not seeing uh, Stan here. So I need to go back to some of my earlier notes and see what I had planned for this week. I have a ton of stuff, actually. Um, Like I said, I I, I really, a lot of this stuff I wanted to talk to Stan about and get his opinion. So I don't want to jump in and start talking about it yet. Um, You know, two interesting topics I wanted to go over with him too. One, you know, I asked him to to do some research for me on AB5, but uh, Stan is also very much into the health side of things. Um, I actually met Stan at a health conference. It was at the Mindshare Summit uh, in San Diego a couple years ago. Um, and we looked at uh, a couple products he was working on, and then he introduced me to Cardio Miracle. And that's really um, what kind of cemented our relationship. So Stanford's very involved on that side of things, and I wanted to talk to him about uh, a proposal for uh, they are really, really pushing to have supplements um, fall under the FDA now, which I think would be a horrible mistake. Uh, But again, that's another topic I kind of wanted to uh, get Stan's opinion on. So while we're waiting for Stan, call me. Um, Give me some thoughts and opinions because, again, I don't want to get too deep into this stuff till I get Stan on with me or... Uh, find out what you think about this. What else was on my list here? We had um, the ports, AB5. Um, oh, here's another one I was going to talk about. This uh, definitely trucking related. I'd love to get some feedback on this one. Um, here's the title, Broker Reform. Should dispatch services be considered brokers? FMCSA's comment request sparks debate. So we've brought this topic up several times before. You know, there was a time where I don't remember dispatch services even existing. This is a fairly new phenomenon, and it really took off in the last couple of years. And I think the reason it took off is because there was so much freight and the rates were so good that a lot of owner operators just wanted to go drive as many miles as they could get. And it was easy to just pay somebody to go find the freight for you, a dispatch service. But honestly, you can do this same thing with brokers. 
I mean, I've seen a lot of brokers, you build a good relationship with them, they'll kind of operate as your back office dispatch service. The, you know, what I saw happening was somebody would get their own authority, they would be getting freight, you know, from brokers or load boards, and then they'd go add a dispatch service. Well, the thing we have to realize about dispatch services is that it, it's only an expense. I mean, there's no revenue generated here. You're already going to be paying a percentage to the broker. There has to be a broker involved in this transportation, in this uh, transaction, by the way. A dispatch service would not be allowed to, to get freight directly from a shipper for you. Because then that would make them a broker. But the typical model is there is a broker involved that booked the freight and the dispatch service simply goes and finds the freight for the owner operator and then charges a commission, a flat fee, whatever they want. And there, there has always been the question of where is that line? When does a dispatch service become a broker or are dispatch services even legal or are they acting as brokers? And in that case, then they need to have broker authority. They need to have a broker bond. All of those uh, issues would kick in at that point if they are considered to be a broker. So this argument isn't going to get solved anytime soon because it's really going to require some, um, clarification of the regulations themselves. And I think the reason for that is that these regulations were written at a time where dispatch services didn't really exist, that this is a fairly new phenomenon. Um, So it looks like the uh, FMCSA is asking for input. Uh, Let's see, this is part of the Let me find the bill here. Um, So they're trying to develop future guidance on the definitions of broker and bona fide agent as required by, here we go, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, That was passed last year by Congress. That was signed into law by uh, President Biden. That is the one infrastructure bill that they managed to get through. So I guess there is some wording in there about brokers and bona fide agents. So the FMCSA asked respondents to answer 13 specific questions related to brokers, bona fide agents, dispatch services, and more. During the month the comment period was open, the agency received 92 comments uh, from different groups. One of the biggest topics of discussion among commenters was the definition of dispatch services and the role they play in trucking and whether they should be required to obtain broker operating authority. Uh, let's see. The own. OOIDA said that it can depend on what the dispatch service is actually doing for the carrier. Um, If there's money involved, then it should be considered a broker's transaction. Yeah, like I say, I don't think we're, we're going to get any answer on this anytime soon, but that is one of the 
uh, issues that I was going to talk about today. Um, like I said, a lot of activity on AB5. Um, there is a group of California lawmakers right now. Looks like it's being led by um, the representative from California, Michelle Steele. She's a Republican. Uh, they sent a letter to Gavin Newsom asking him to uh, take immediate action to prevent AB5 from devastating the California trucking industry and further crippling nationwide supply chains. Uh, I agree. Um, something needs to be done about AB5. It's being uh, attempted on a lot of different fronts, but for the most part, it looks like this is going to go into uh, its law, and, and it looks like it's going to go into effect. A lot of questions still. I think a lot of carriers are going to ignore it. I don't think they're going to make big changes right away. I think they'll sit back and see how the um, how the uh, courts start deciding on these cases. Uh, so we're going to be hearing a lot about AB5 uh, for a long time. Just know, though, there is a federal bill in place as well. And I was a little worried that, you know, this administration had two years of total control. I'm hoping that total control is about to end in November. But, you know, they had two years and I thought if if there was ever a time they were going to get a federal AB5 type law passed, it would have been now. I, there's no way they're going to get anything like this passed before November. And then hopefully after November... We have some sanity back in Washington, and uh, we won't have to worry about things like this. Elections do have consequences. Um, oh, looks like we've... Oh, I should have been paying attention. I kept looking up, and I, it said zero calls, but my page didn't refresh. So Stan's been waiting there for me, and I'm uh, just blabbing along waiting for him. Uh, Stan, I just saw you there. Welcome. Hi, Kevin. Great. Uh, I was on your monologue there, so uh, informative. So, Yeah, well, great with Great to have you back here again. Um, last week, I, I got a bunch of stuff. I should have made better notes here, so I had stuff in order. Last week, um, I was looking forward to talking to you about a couple of books I've been reading. Um, did I get a chance the last time you were here? Did we talk about those books? Not that I recall. Kevin. I, I, Just, I don't. Uh, I don't think away. we did. Yeah, I think I, I talked with um, John about him last week. But I, I'd love to get your feedback on a book. I actually, sure. I, I made the mistake of I was trying to read four books at the same time. I just totally lost my mind, and all four of them were fairly <laughs> complicated. So I, I was, if I would have had hair, I would have been pulling it out. So I had to take a step back and say, wait a minute, this is stupid. Read one at a time. Um, but all four really kind of tied into the big picture of kind of what's going on in our world and our economy right now. So the one I, I'd love to have you read, if, if maybe you have already, I don't know. Are you familiar with Peter Zeehan at all? Yes. Okay. Then maybe you've read his book. 
Um, he's written several on this topic starting back in about 2014, but he just finished one in June and put it out. It's called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. You know, I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, it, it, he, like I said, he's touched on this topic in a couple of his other books, yeah. but I'll, I'll give you the kind of the thumbnail of, of what he's claiming. Mm-hmm. He's looking at, he's looking historically. The other thing I'll say about this book, I was surprised. With this topic, I thought it was going to be heavily politicized, the book. He did an amazing mm-hmm. job of not making this political at all. He didn't blame any of these things on the right. Democrats or the Republicans or Trump or Obama. Or, he, he just kind of laid right. out the facts and looked historically and said, based on what's happened historically, what's happened now, here's what he's predicting is going to happen to our world economy. And he does an amazing job with the research. I learned a ton about our global supply chain, how complicated it is, how, you know, certain countries really specialize in certain things. But his big premise, and and it could be, I keep saying this, could be total bullshit. Um, He's making an awful lot of assumptions, but he did such a good job of laying this out. It's one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. He claims that if you look at population densities and ages and, you know, we know that in this country we're kind of aging out, you know, the baby boomers are retiring. I'm one of the last of the baby boomers. I think 1965 is the official last year. I was born in 63. So I'm right there at the end of the baby boomers. And we are, we're, we're, we're all retiring here soon. And we don't have enough people to replace us in the workforce. And maybe that's a part of what we're already seeing. We're all complaining. There aren't enough people to work, can't get good service anymore. Um, that clearly could be not only do we have fewer people, but the people we do have have a lot less experience. So it's not just numbers, it's it's effectiveness of these people in the workforce. But when he looks all around the world, this is kind of occurring in most places around the world. China has a real problem with this because they restricted the number of babies you could have and they aborted many of the female um, babies. So they're really going to have a problem with this. But his claim is because of the aging workforce, it is going to cause what he calls deglobalization. You know, we keep hearing about this one world order and one world government, and he's saying the opposite is going to happen. We're going to trade less and less with each country because we won't have the people to be able to do it. And we're heading into a point where every country is kind of going to have to fend for themselves. It's a crazy theory. You see what's happening in Sri Lanka. Right. Yeah. Um, absolutely you know uh who's who's rushing to their aid nobody uh, (laughs) nobody yeah and so you're you're kind of left to solve your own problems because uh i don't see the world bank stepping in i don't see anybody else stepping in to uh you know provide any other credit because they're bankrupt and who's going to do that who's going to back up and bond that country right right um Regardless of, I mean, we can talk about workers, we can talk about supply chains, but um, 
and if you if you can effectively shut down plant, uh, um, if you can effectively shut down food production and food distribution uh, and energy production and energy distribution, you know the uh, whether there are any assets that underlie their, their currency. I mean, very basic fundamental things that uh, yeah, you see how quickly a a country can devolve into something pretty uh, unrecognizable where any kind of democratic rule is very geographically uh, centric. It it can work with small groups of people. The larger the geographic footprint where you start experiencing weather, different weather patterns, uh, different soil patterns, different abilities to, you know, different uh, areas have water supply, others don't. I mean, at some point in time, you, you figure out that natural resources really aren't that movable. <laughs> you know, right. That presents a problem. So right. Where, yeah. where, where you live, you know, if, if I was living on the North Fork of the Provo River on some riparian land, I'm not really worried about water supply. <laughs> that's right. But if I'm living in New York City, if I live in New York City, that's a different deal. And, uh, how am I going to, uh, you know, how do I access as a member of a massive public concentration like in New York City? How do I secure my ability to, how, how do I secure food supply? How do I secure water supply? Well, the bottom line is you can't. Yeah, that's right. In, in your apartment, you know, the, your apartment that's uh, costing you uh, just about everything you're making, you don't have the room to store water or food. I mean, you know, you're right. living in a box. Yeah. You know, about 200 by, you know, maybe maybe 400 square feet. So it's a real challenge. And uh, you, ironically, be implementing a strictly democratic society over a large geographic area is impossible without a tyrant. Because you've got to be able to, and tyrannical leaders, because they've got to say, well, we're going to take resources from, for example, the, the water uh, you know, the water basins that, uh, watersheds that occur along the uh, continental divide here out of the Rockies, you know, that span the continent and, uh, in those states where the water supply originates. And we're going to pass that along to everybody else. Right. Yeah. Well, what if those states, you know, you, you devolve into some a chaotic system and you go ahead and try to enforce that when the folks in the states own the water say, no. Right. Yeah. Colorado and, and the Utah and California may have a couple of disagreements, you know. Yes. About uh, supplying water. You know, these uh, these Rocky Mountain states may say, you know, uh, Nevada, California, Arizona, not interested. We're, we're going to keep our water supply. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It, it is interesting. The um, what. Uh, what we, what we can see in Sri Lanka is, it, really to your point, is that the, uh, the value of an economic unit, particularly in this, well, even in this, in this, uh, in our country, the Federal Reserve notes, they have no, there is no inherent value. So when inherent, when the circumstances demand inherent value in, in terms of assets, uh, that in, in commodities, then you can figure out pretty quick uh, um, what becomes valuable in situations yeah. like Sri Lanka is going, going through. And we, 
so uh, yeah, all to your point, all to uh, Peter's point, uh, Peter Zion's point is um, you're not interested in trading very much uh, when you have, uh, well, you know, or really the only time you can trade with another geographical area is if you have a natural resource that they want or that they absolutely need. And then you can trade, then you can barter. Yeah, Correct, we're, right. uh, yeah. That's the one weakness, right? That the, the paper fiat money. Uh, yeah, which. Um, destabilizes that, that ability. Which is the uh, one of the other books that I was reading was The Creature from Jekyll Island, which really focuses on, you know, the Fed and the gold oh, standard yeah. and fiat money. And so that all ties in. Then I was reading yeah. a book called uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which talks about mm-hmm. how. No matter how much we move to electric, oil's not going away. We use it for so many things. And as far as transport, we're going to be using diesel fuel for a long, long time for transport. As much as I love electric and electric tools and cars, and I think it's we're getting some great new products on the market, oil is still king and it's going to be for a long, long time. Uh, and then the fourth book I threw into the mix was Steve Forbes' book on inflation. And my God, I thought my head was going to explode um, for a while. So uh, I finished the book. Um, uh, the end of the world is just the beginning. I'm about a third of the way through the creature from Jekyll Island right now. Uh, the other thing he talks yeah. about that was really interesting that is it, part of why this deglobalization is going to happen starts with the population. We're not going to have enough people working in these countries uh, to kind of maintain some mm-hmm. of these systems. The other thing he talked about, though, and I never this never really dawned on me, I guess. I, I don't know why we didn't learn this kind of history in school. Seems much more interesting to me that after World War Two, the United States and prior to World War Two, there was not a lot of global trade going on. Almost none, um, which is kind of shocking, but that's really how it happened. After World War II, the only country with a, a really sustainable Navy was the United States. And basically what we said was we will use our Navy all over the world to protect shipments. I never even thought about that. What if, what if there's yeah. nobody out there to protect shipments? Because countries yeah. have their own laws. But once you start sailing out into the ocean, who who's the police? I, I, I never dawned on me that somebody has to do that. Otherwise, countries just start taking over other countries' ships. Yeah, piracy is an old profession. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that. And basically, his premise in this book is we are going to stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting just by, you know, analogy, if you would regard the, uh, because those listening are truckers and I don't know how, what percentage of, what percentage of the uh, miles traveled delivering goods between two points is an international, or I'm sorry, uh, national freeway, is the national freeway system. Now, just imagine if that wasn't policed. Right. If right. those miles, <laughs> you know, if, if that section of our transportation system, just state roads, were police, not the not the federal right. highways, right? Then what would happen? I mean, you'd you'd have some, you'd have a lot of privateering. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 
Yeah, I never thought about so, that. Yeah. But that's yeah. kind of what happens out in the world shipping. You know, there was a time, remember, I don't know, it was this, I think it was during the 90s. Hell, they made seven, a movie seven. about it. The, the Somalia. Oh, seven, every, every, yeah, boil everything down. Everything is a commercial transaction. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Government is a, is a commercial transaction. And think about it. What, what significant commercial transaction are you aware of personally or that you have engaged in personally where you don't bond for that? You don't insure against yeah, failure. You're right. You're right. Like, I don't know. You buy a house and you buy title insurance. Correct. Right. Just, yeah. just as, you know, maybe something that everybody's done, right? Or you buy a truck. You want to own title. That, that's a commercial transaction because you have to have commercial paper to back up that ownership. And somebody, somebody has uh, written some, you know, insurance or commercial paper on top of that paper. Right. To insure ownership, to insure damage issues, all that stuff. You can just expand that that application of that very general principle. Every interaction is a commercial transaction and it is insured and indemnified to protect those at risk. Period. Yeah. Hmm. Everybody. And you wonder why, uh, for example, those people who are you know, set in positions to represent us in government capacities, why did they take an oath? Yeah. Why are, they, uh, why are they required to take an oath of office? Well, what's an oath? It's, a, it's an agreement. Right. Contract. Yeah. It's a contract. It's exactly right. It's a contract. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you can bet that that contract is bonded and insured in the event of the violation of that contract. Yeah. And, and who's going to be held accountable and responsible to pay for the breach of that agreement? Yeah, interesting. I, I just, like I said, this, this book, and like I said, it, it's it, it's such a big picture, the thought of us de-globalizing. My God, it's hard to get my head around that. But he did such an amazing job of, you know, yeah. and, and here's the interesting thing. Like I said, he kept it completely non-political. The whole book, I kept it, thinking. It is, it is, yep. I, I, it is a political yeah, right. I, I kept thinking politics are going to creep in here somewhere, but it didn't. He, he did an amazing job of writing it. In the final chapter, you get a clue of what his politics are. You, you don't get that throughout the book at all. Um, in the final chapter, you get a clue of what his politics are. And I'm a 99% certain him and I would not agree on anything politically. Yet I still think it was an amazing book. I, th- I think he did a really good job writing it. Again, it, it might, it, it, who knows? It Maybe it should have been a novel. I don't know. But it, it's certainly thought-provoking. Well, here's something. I would, I would uh, suggest another, uh, another reading assignment for everybody listening. Fortunately, this is not a book. It's a treaty. It's the Treaty of Ghent. G-H-E-N-T. G- uh, which was signed on December 24th of 1814. It ended the War of, eight, of 1812. Uh, everybody, uh, we, we remember uh, the Revolutionary War and the ostensible end of the war. Right? 
Well, if it really ended and if we really won, then why were we fighting the British again in 1812? Yeah, good point. You know, just a couple, a couple, a couple of years later. Um, well, because the war hadn't ended. In the, uh, the, the battle had ended. Um, but Britain never surrendered. Hmm. Interesting. They never surrendered. Yeah. They never huh. conceded. They never conceded. Um, the, uh, and, and really that battle, Kevin, when we were talking about contracts, the Revolutionary War was a, really a, a battle of financiers. Britain had all the coin they needed, as well as all the manpower. You know, they had the largest navy, you know, speaking about navies. I mean, they were, they were the ruler of the, one of the greatest rulers in the, in the world. And they had all the coin they needed to back up the war against uh, this paltry colony of 13, you know, Confederate states who were all, you know, by the way, you know, British citizens. They weren't, you know, Americans weren't in there. Americans were in the country. Everybody was a British citizen. Well, we won the war, you know, air quotes, uh, we prevailed. America, the, the uh, Confederate army prevailed because uh, we were financed. We needed money. We didn't have any money. You know, every state developed its own currency, and it wasn't. It's not like you could use New York money to do business in Delaware. I mean, it was it was a problem, right? Even under the Articles of Confederation, right? It was a problem. Well, uh, who who financed the who financed Washington and and the troops? Who financed our side of the war? Well, um, the Dutch were the first ones to underwrite it. And then the Spanish. And then finally, you know, at the end of the game where uh, it looked like we just might prevail, it wasn't lending money, it was actually speculating, France came in. As you recall, at the very end of that uh, of that uh, war process, they came in and provided the final financing that allowed us to prevail. Well, um, that debt was uh, underwritten by do some American history and, and read the, the history of the establishment of uh, the first national bank. You know, in the U.S., you know, that Alexander Hamilton argued and that was the primary mover in, in setting up and the second national bank and do a little bit of uh, scratching around and find out who who were who owned eighty percent of the first national bank of the United States, and and who owned eighty percent of the second national bank? And what do those bank charters say? Because I'll, I'll tell you, Kevin, because that's who owned the country, right? Yeah, no doubt. That's who owned this country. A couple of guys. One of them was a Philadelphia merchant. You know. Yeah, uh, and then our debt, our debt, our debt—the Revolutionary War debt was not paid until the mid nineteenth, not paid off until the mid nineteenth century. Wow. Yeah, and uh, you know the uh, I don't again the other another couple of things perhaps we can talk about another time, but I don't we ought to have a conversation about the the British East India Company and the Hudson Bay Company. And uh, their charters in this country, 
you know, that were chartered companies, chartered British companies. Um, you know, my, one of my arguments, Kevin, is that we actually never transitioned to an independent country. We're still a we're still a colony of the British. <laughs> but read the read the Treaty of Ghent, G H E N T, and uh, invite. I am going to do that. Take a look at it. Yeah, I'm and, going to do uh, that. And then specific language. And then, then you can see, well, this old order that was this global order that we're afraid of, that we're afraid is, you know, that we've been told is, is coming about because the World Economic Forum and, you know, inhuman humans like Yuval Harari and, you know, that says you can, you know, people are, you know, uh, basically hard assets you can trade. Yeah. You know, he checked out of the he checked, he checked out of the human race when he when he started making those kinds of statements. Yeah, exactly. Um, instead of you know really ties uh, to Zion's point is uh, we're we're not at a point of becoming a global economy. We've been one, maybe since the Holy Roman Empire, you know, which predates Rome by you know, a, a thousand years or so. Right. And the fact is, we've been a global. We've been a global. Uh, economy and social system for you know thousands of years, and that yeah. order is coming apart. Yeah, that that's kind it's of the, com- the it's not coming together; it's coming apart. Yeah, that's kind of the interesting thing here. You're right. We can go way, 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 way back when the global economy first started, and it's probably much further back than a lot of people realize. But the pattern has oh, yeah. been. There's been more and more global trading every year since then, right up till the present time. I mean, we're still expanding our global trading, but now he's saying, yeah, but that's over. That's done. And he does a good job of explaining why it's over and why it's done and what the catalysts are. It's just really hard to get your head around that thought. Yeah, it's a it's a great thought provoking argument, and uh, it does as well to consider it. The, the it really does. You know, the good news here, and I don't know if he's just you know overly optimistic or, but again, when when you listen to his reasoning, when if this is going to happen, and he claims it is, we are going to deglobalize. We are going to trade less and less. Um, and at some point, there may be countries not trading at all, and you're going to have to depend on your own resources. Then he starts laying out the the countries around the world. And here's the interesting thing. If you, the analogy I use to try to explain this is, is if you and I were from another planet and we were trying to find a new planet to inhabit. So we see Earth, oh, this looks like it might be a good candidate. Let's study Earth and figure out where on Earth would be the best place to live based on all these factors, resources. We need energy to live. We need food. We need water. We need... If you were to study the globe and pick the best place to live based on resources, guess where it is? It's the United States. We have... Every advantage you could ask for. We have a 
beautiful water supply. We have more farmable land than any other country in the world. We're very well protected from all the other countries because at some point, just like has happened in civilization, if you have the resources, somebody's going to try to take them away from you. That That's how the world's worked. Yeah, that's, that's- and that's the premise of war. Yeah, war is resource management. That's, that's it. It's, <laughs> you're right. It's just resource that's management. That's, that's what war is all about. Yep. And we that's are all about. very, very well protected. We are next to impossible to invade because geographically, yeah, you, great, yeah we have two great, yeah, two great shorelines, and yeah, we if you travel far enough down the uh, the Central American Isthmus, you can actually, you know. It, <laughs> You could construct a pretty substantial border down there. Yeah, in uh, Nicaragua. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you're not you're not going to invade us and take resources. It, it's, yeah. And here's the other crazy thing. Guess which country is one of the worst in, in a situation like this? It's China. the one, yeah, exactly <laughs> the one we're so worried about. But China, if this were to happen, China would be back in the dark ages. Oh, yeah. China yeah. has yeah, almost no resources of its own. They have horrible geography. They are so far away from everybody else. Like their supply chain is like 9,000 miles long to get the stuff they need. And, and their population is old. They, they have some real problems when it comes to this. They, they have some real problems. Think about this. They have, a, they have two generations of men who have never had an opportunity really to marry because they killed all the women. Yeah. Yeah. And those guys are not happy. They're not happy. That's a good point. They're not happy. They've, uh, they've lived their lives, you know, making a, an earning, making a living, you know, etching out a living. And now they, you know, they're our age, Kevin. Yeah. Now they're 40, 50, 60 years old. And uh, that a point, they don't have family. They don't have kids. Right. They've got, oh, probably nine on the 800 million single men. You know. Yeah. Never married, never had kids. Now, where's the meaning of life? You get to the end here, 40, 56 years old. Right. You have no family relationships. What are you living for? Good point. Good point. And, uh, and, and who puts you in that situation? Yeah. And what are you going to do about it? It's a it's a really big problem that China has. Actually, nobody nobody thinks about. They've got a very large problem internally. Yeah, and yeah. I just wonder why they're taking some of the actions that they're doing right now to you know shutting entire cities, you know, entire regions down. And it um, looks like they're about to do it again. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting stuff going on. Yeah, it is. All right. Couple, and I, I think you know the three of us. I, I want to read this um, Treaty of Ghent. Um, I talked with uh, John last week about reading a couple of these books. I just think maybe we'll put together a a show where we do a little deeper dive into that. There are a couple topics I want to go over before we wrap things up today. Um, the last time 
we talked, I'm pretty sure uh, we talked quite a bit about AB5, but my thought at the time was that the Supreme Court was just going to kind of put it off till the next session. Uh, And on the last Mm -hmm. day, they did something that shocked me. They actually ruled on it or technically decided they're not going to rule on it and allowed the Ninth Circuit Court uh, their decision to stand, which means AB5 is now law in California. Yeah, it'll actually, um, because there's a non-determination on it, uh, you know, a, a refusal to hear it, there's uh, the, the Ninth Circuit decision. I think you'll see a recourse back to the, the state court in California because there, there are some arguments that... Um, are still that can still be made, um, and that haven't been uh, specifically, I don't think, specifically addressed, even by the, the the court's decision not to hear it. Does throw it back to California. Um, that will be really interesting to see. I mean, there the, one of the primary arguments came out of the, you know, the argument of, of that uh, jurisdiction. A jurisdictional issue under the Federal Aviation uh, Administration. Um, I don't think it's over, and I think that yeah, the uh, it survived a first volley, but, but I don't think it's over by any means. Yeah, I think what's going to happen this time, though, is that um, you know when they first passed the law, it was immediately mm-hmm. challenged. So before the law even had a chance to go into effect, before anything was enforced, it was in the courts. So everybody just ignored it. You know, all the trucking companies said, okay, we got a break. It's in the courts. We can just ignore it for now. That part's over, though. I mean, it's it's law now and we have to deal with it. And like you said, it's not over over. The fight will continue. But for the most part. Yeah, there's, there's nothing there's, in the works right now, so it's an enforceable law. It, it is a temporary conclusion. It is. Yeah, um, so we've got... It'll, be, uh, it'll, go, it'll go back to the district court, I think, and they'll have to consider um, the the argument, the California Trucking Association's argument that it violates the Commerce Clause. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, that's a... You know, you think about the timing of this. We have the worst supply chain in history. Much of that supply chain problem for us in the U.S. is based right in the ports of Southern California. All those containers are still piling yeah. up out there. And and Long Beach is, yeah, the, the lines in Long Beach are long. Yeah, and now sure. that that's, that's where many of these owner operators in California work out of those ports. They're protesting now. So our supply chain's about to get worse. And on top of that, the railroads are trying to strike. Yeah. So I, I saw a commercial the other day on TV. And at first I was just shaking my head thinking, what is this commercial even for? Um, have you seen Gavin Newsom's latest commercial? No, I haven't. I, I, I'm watching it. I'm like, why is Gavin Newsom running a commercial like this? He he has a, I guess you would call it a political ad, but I, I'm not really sure what oh. the point of it is. He 
he did this whole. Go ahead. Yeah, he did this whole ad about leave California or leave Florida and come to yeah. California. And his point was he tried to make it sound like Florida is taking away everybody's freedoms. That's the whole point. The theme of it is Florida is trying to take away your freedoms. Come to California where we're still free. I, that's the most ironic commercial I think I've ever heard. Yeah, I did see, yeah, I did see that one. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know, we were so... You know, I was thinking that he had done something, uh, another stunt beyond that. Oh, uh, no. The, yeah, the, that was, uh, you know, there, for, I, the irony never ends. First off, with, what's uh, the point of the commercial? California. Oh, I think he has ambitions to run for president. I, that's really the only conclusion you can come to, that he's already, well, he, he's already, he's yeah, he's already campaigning against DeSantis. Yeah, yeah, but here, here's the crazy That's thing. The line, right? you come, to- come to California where we're, we're still free. Bullshit. I can't yeah. even run my business the way I want to anymore. You took away the freedom well, for know, me to run my business the way I've run it for 40 years. Here's, here's, the, here's another piece of irony, which is so funny. Well, actually, it's comical. It, it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic. In George Orwell's 1984, one of the slogans, of that society was slavery is freedom. <laughs> and here you have Gavin Newsom. I, you know, I kid you not. And uh, that that was one of the slogans that was uh, the part of the uh, the dumbing down and education oh. of the of the citizenry. And here you have Gavin Newsom, who has you know, as the governor of that once beautiful state, maybe still beautiful state. They're driving it into the ground it, and uh, making serfs of everybody. Uh, arguing that yeah, I, they're, they're a free, uh, free economy that what uh, you know DeSantis has been doing by you know more than less turning more opportunity back. You know, keeping civil yeah. uh, liberties alive in Florida to to a larger degree than California for sure. Yeah, not long after I saw the commercial, obviously when I saw the commercial, he's talking about how free they are. The only thing I could think of was AB5. But then the next thing I'm reading, they are implementing indoor mask mandates again. Yeah. Yeah, free my, free my ass. All right, couple other topics. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. The... Uh, and I, I have a feeling you're probably all over this one, and it fits in with so many other things. The uh, Dutch farmers. Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah. 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 And shocking. It, did I hear this yeah. right? It, the, the Dutch export, like, more food than almost everybody else in the world except maybe us? That's true. I had no idea. Export. Yeah, the second largest largest exporter of food, second only to the United States. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Richest, one of the top three richest countries in the world. I have a uh, a, a very yeah. good friend who grew up in the Netherlands, came over here as an adult. Um, really interesting guy, but I had no idea that the Netherlands Nobody produced that kind that, of food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Relatively, nobody knows that, you know, up there in a, even Norway is uh, 
top three world producer of food. Yeah. In those small countries, and nobody knows that. But in terms of using the land, no one's better at, uh, at you know, creating, you think about it, the Dutch and their ability to create land, right? Because uh, that's what they do. They, well, they right. reclaim land from the sea, right? That's what they, they build dikes. Right. They build damn yeah. good dikes. They create yeah. land, and they, they had to learn how to use land to its optimum capacity, and they've mastered that. They're absolutely mastered. They're kind of like beavers. When you consider consider their growing season, you know it's short. Yeah, yeah it is. You know, their their natural growing season. So of course they're they they've uh, they're, they've mastered artificial growing environments. Yeah, I was. Um, now yeah. here's the interesting thing. I, I think both you and I would agree in principle with what the Dutch government is trying to do. I, I, I want to see more of what they're pushing for, but like most things with government, they're just going to do it all wrong. I mean, the government is really trying to get them to cut back on all the artificial fertilizers because of the environment. You and I would both agree with that, right? I mean, we'd much rather see farming go back to be true regenerative farming, but unfortunately, that's that's not why they're doing this. Um, This is a control thing. Well, it's like it's like like uh, yeah, it's like President or uh, Joe Biden when he was running for the presidency said that he would uh, he would stop. No, terminate in the fossil fuel industry because, yeah. gosh, we need a better outcome. We need sustainable energy. So all we have to do is uh, shut down the existing one, and that'll force everybody's hand, regardless of what the cost, you know, in human lives, and uh, and you know, uh, and uh, human lives and resources, regardless of what that's going to cost. And he he said it in the debates with Trump. He says, "I'll end it. I'll end it." So uh, the fact that we have these, uh, you know, the energy prices that we do is anybody's shocked. They weren't listening. They, well, yeah, they exactly. Listening. You know, here's the problem with the farm thing. Um, we know yeah. that the way we farm around the world right now is destroying the environment. There's no doubt about it. It's horrible for the land. It's horrible for us, our, our health. That food that comes off there isn't healthy. Um, but yeah. you can't make that switch from chemical farming to regenerative farming overnight. It takes years. Oh, it to, to, and yeah, it when, when yeah. all they're doing is saying you have to reduce it, I think they're trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen by 50%. Well, when nitrogen, that, potassium, yeah. It, it, yeah, it, guess what's going to happen? The yields are going to crash. You're going, yeah, that those plants can't grow without those chemical fertilizers because the soil is barren. So you take away the chemical fertilizers yeah. or minimize them, and you're just not going to have any yield, and people are going to starve. Yeah, your yield will go down, and water consumption won't go up because those plants will require more water. Much more water, right. As as deep as they otherwise would, you, know, you have all kinds of downstream consequences from and, that, that, of course, they haven't thought about. And without those fertilizers, the plants become less healthy. And now you need more pesticides, more herbicides. Unhealthy plants yeah. are much more affected by all of those things. So we have to double down on all those other chemicals. 
What a horrible yeah, idea. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, they're, they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're talking that this could become a global movement though, that if, if countries start forcing this, the farmers are going to fight back. Yeah. There, you know, and fortunately there is some innovation on that side. We had a very, I have a very good friend who actually produces a, Oh, a fabulous, uh, non-chemical fertilizer actually revitalizes soil microbes. And I'll tell you, he's making contracts with sovereign states now um, that are looking for alternatives because they're seeing what's happening and they're looking for the alternatives yeah, uh, he, to the, the typical fertilizing, you know, you know, um, I, I think model. what they're talking about there is I, I'm actually studying this now and I'm working on it in my own garden um just like mm-hmm. we're we're learning all of this stuff about human microbiome and how important gut bacteria is and we can't live without this bacteria well it turns out that farming and plants are no different they, it's all about bacteria exactly right i am i am now exactly using right. instead of chemicals and fertilizers and insecticides and you know herbicides i'm now using basically just bacteria um i i you know we talk about fermenting our own yogurt and fermenting our own vegetables because we create i I make something now called compost tea which is basically the same thing as making yogurt i take good real good quality soil which i have some of my own um, throw a handful in a bucket and then I put some plant food in there. It's not a fertilizer, it's just basically food. And then you put water in and you let it ferment. And the microbes that were in your good soil start to eat the food and they multiply and we get a lot more of them, just like making yogurt or fermented vegetables. Yep. And then that goes back to feed the plant and the soil. And the, the good bacteria do all kinds of crazy things. They can cut water consumption or water needs down by like 80%. The plant can be just as healthy with 80% less water because it has these right microbes on the roots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great that putting those things that that knowledge to personal use. I think one of the benefits, Kevin, that you provide listeners that I would like to focus on is we can identify problems, but it's great when we can also share solutions that are, you know, that, that the common man can implement. The common man, the common woman can say, I can do that in my life so that I can be less dependent on, uh, you know, the government structure that's seeking to enslave, you know, basically to further enslave us. Yeah. make us dependent upon them. So I really do appreciate the efforts you make and want to contribute to that to, to folks to say, hey, yeah, these are problems. Here are some, here are some workable solutions. Here are some things that you can do. Exactly. Yeah, to affect change in your life and, and to affect change in your broader family and broader community. So. so let's touch on one more topic, and this may be something where we're going to ask people to help and give them something to do um i want to find this uh let's see if i can find this bill again okay um we need to start talking about the dietary supplement listing act of 2022 have you seen this yes 
what are we going to do about this? This is bad. Yeah. Well, we're actually having some conversations with uh, some legislators now about this and forming some uh, coalitions uh, to oppose it. Good. Yeah, it's... uh, this is an overreach. Yeah, it's a huge uh, overreach. Sure. And it, it, let's talk about yeah. irony again. Um, I, I've seen statistics, and, you know, it's like statistics. You can chop them and dice them and slice them and come up with all kinds of different conclusions. But I, I've seen statistics where, like, the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. now are, um, like, prescription drug and medical mistakes. Yeah. It's a huge issue. Yeah, third or fourth. It's right up there. Yeah. 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 So the entire pharmaceutical industry is completely and totally managed by the FDA. That that's what they do. Now, here's the screwy thing. That's right. Why do we have or an otherwise, a- actually actually it's actually it's the other way around, Kev, but yeah. Yeah, well you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um why they're, why they're managed, yeah, the pharma is managing the FDA. <laughs> Correct. So. Well, yeah, it's just <laughs> one big brotherhood anyway, because they just move in and out of, yeah. you know, they'll be the CEO of a big pharmaceutical company and then next week they actually yeah. are working yeah. for the FDA. Yeah. Um, Can I point out just one thing here historically? Because this goes back really to the founding of our country, the East India Company, the Hudson Bay Company. Um, Actually, this uh, fellow, I won't mention him by name, but the the Philadelphia merchant who was the founder of the first national bank of the United States was an opium dealer, opium and heroin. Really? Oh man! Yeah, that's interesting. Remember the, the opium dens? Yeah. Oh the yeah. Opium dens. Yeah. So, oh yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, uh, and that's where he got his money. So he, fast forward to where we are now. I'm talking 17th century, 16th century, or 17th century founding. That that bank was founded by a drug company. You know, most people don't realize that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were virtually no drug laws that you could buy. I mean, I, I you can find labels of cough syrup that had heroin, cocaine, sure. and cannabis, all three in a cough syrup. <laughs> yeah. Didn't so. You, didn't- your thoughts, but you felt better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, you, you might still have all the same stuff. You just didn't care anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so here's the thing. Here's, the point is this: we haven't moved far. The apple is uh, hasn't even fallen off the tree. <laughs> right here, it's the fact that the, the country, our country, was founded in bankroll by drug companies. Yeah. Literally, yeah, drug companies. You're right. Nothing's so, changed. Let there be no surprise about. Yeah, nothing has changed. In fact, it's just become obvious. So those of us who had no idea about history can actually recognize it. Nothing has changed. Yeah. This has always been who has bankrolled this country. Yeah, is drug barons. Yeah, it just so happens that you know the drug barons can uh, acquire enough um, capital to found a bank so you can now give another your folks can do a little research on your folks can do a little research on the Berenberg bank go back take a look at the at that bank and and uh who founded it and and 
how it's been operating. And actually, one of the descendants of those founders is um, uh, is head of the of, uh, of a couple of uh, treaty and military organizations between the Europe and the United States. Oh boy! You know NATO. So our current the current leader the current leadership of NATO oh, is part wow. of that Baron Burbank family. <laughs> yeah. So where we are now on this, the irony of the FDA is the organization that is supposed to make sure our drug supply is safe. Why? Why we have one agency regulating food and drugs is insane to me. Um, but they do. They yeah. they obviously don't do a very good job because prescription drugs kill a lot of people. A lot. Um, now with the opioid well, crisis, the, it's, it's finer, gotten even worse. Go ahead. Yeah, but I think the finer, finer point on that is, you know, the, the pharmaceutical company and the, the death rate, uh, the relationship between the number of deaths caused by not the abuse of prescription medication, but those deaths is making it the third or fourth largest uh, killer in the country is the proper correct yeah prescription of right pharmaceutical yeah this isn't the abuse correct of that's correct abuse, right good point of, yeah so, the, the, this is people taking it, the drug exactly the way the doctor As, told them to take the drug and it kills them exactly yeah exactly. Yeah, and it could be a drug interaction because of the thousands and thousands of drugs on the market. No two have ever been tested together for safety. Fabulous point. It just so happens that, yeah, the FDA does not take a comprehensive view. They have a one-off approval system, and there is no inter-drug activity uh, um, process to determine... uh, you know, what the outcomes of mixing, yeah, and, you know, I don't know, an infinite number. You can do the math to figure out how many different oh, combinations <laughs> right. based on the number of drugs there are. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Not and, even talking about dosage of each, right? So, or, or conditions. I mean, it's... Well, it's it's Russian roulette, you know, with uh, only one chamber empty and five loaded. <laughs> I mean, it's really... It's, yeah. it's stacked against yeah, and, and and the testing for a drug is only tested for a specific condition, and then it gets approved for that specific condition. But the FDA gives doctors freedom to prescribe that drug for anything they want. Even though it wasn't ever tested for that, there's no proof. The doctors have total freedom called off-label prescribing they're allowed to off-label prescribe all they want the one thing we're not supposed to be allowed to do but you can watch it on tv virtually every day you're not supposed to be allowed to advertise a drug for a condition that it wasn't tested for but the companies do it all the time and you know what happens they get fined and then they look at the yeah. the sales of the drug are so much more than the fine. They just look at it as a cost of doing business. They they write and, and air illegal commercials knowing they're going to get fined. And for them, it's just a cost of doing business. Well, uh, an example of that very point in uh, 2005, the FDA told uh, Pfizer 
to take its drug Bextra off the market. Yeah. Or else. Uh, uh, Pfizer complied, you know, fighting against it, but did. Uh, the Department of Justice, when there was a shadow of one, then pursued a criminal investigation against Pfizer, which uh, evolved into an out a, uh, a settlement in 2010, a settlement to a criminal uh, indictment. Uh, the settlement was the largest, and still is the largest settlement in DOJ history, $2.3 billion, uh, which Pfizer paid. Um, the crime kept, though, the crime they were uh, prosecuted for and from which that settlement derived was deceptive promotion. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was deceptive promotion. Yep. Um, you, know, you think, well, maybe it was a consequence of having killed more people than their uh, human trials uh, you know, indicated or, what, or whatever. Right. You know, right. Side effects that they didn't disclose, all those kinds of things, it didn't know as deceptive promotion. So, you know, it's, I think, I think Pfizer has a learning curve. It's either a flat learning curve or they just make too much money. It doesn't matter. I think that's we're, it. We're 10 years, right. we're, ten, we're 10 years down the road, right? Yeah. 2020, they're pushing an injection. Uh, and I think there's been some deceptive promotion oh, surrounding these injections. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been 10 years yeah. since that uh, large settlement. So That's right. We'll see. Well, but I could, uh, I would, can I give you just a quick report on the prosecuting alpha? We are waiting for a written opinion from the federal district court in Utah on our, on our case in Griner versus Biden. And the purpose, just as a refresher, the purpose of that federal case is to, uh, to terminate the remaining injection mandate, the remaining federal injection mandate against healthcare workers. We had oral arguments on two motions on July 6th. And, uh, our motion for a preliminary injunction to immediately put a stop to the injection mandate against the healthcare workers. The Biden administration had filed a motion to dismiss, and those two motions were argued. Um, the, the DOJ's, the, the government's representation, legal representation, was painfully inadequate. They were not prepared, and we uh, read from the judge's comments that um, he was frustrated with them. Uh, they just didn't have the answers to his questions. Whereas uh, our counsel, with, uh, George Wentz, just a uh, phenomenal lawyer, but uh, more to the point, a, a wonderful human being. He did a masterful job. And so at the end of that hearing, the, <clears throat> the judge said, I'm not going to grant your motion to dismiss. Now I'm taking this matter under advisement. Uh, the, the government's lawyers were uh, shocked that they weren't going to get a ruling from the bench. Yeah, and they didn't. The, uh, so every day that has passed that we haven't heard from the court and haven't yet received that written opinion is, is uh, ways in our favor. We think actually we have a 75-80% probability of prevailing or the court coming back to tell the the Biden administration, so actually, the president of the United States, because he is a party, 
is a defendant in the lawsuit. And HHS and CMS, that uh, their motion to dismiss is denied. And that will allow us to go forward with uh, a discovery in the case, you know, in, ter- in uh, terms of discovery. Excellent. Start issuing subpoenas for depositions, records, etc. I consider this the uh, conclusion of this case, Kevin, the conclusion. Winning this case would mean that we have a ruling from a federal district court that the injections were not vaccines. So if they were not vaccines, let's just play out a couple of, just take it to a logical conclusion. They were not vaccines because they did not provide the immunity, which was the premise, the indisputable premise of the administration for their necessity. They were said the injections were in the mandate was necessary because it was uh, those injections were the best way to prevent transmissibility and to prevent infectivity. And of course, the evidence is out now that they, the injections didn't either. So, and, and just actually last Tuesday, the Epoch Times came out with an article they had done, received uh, uh, pursuant to a FOIA request, uh, emails, et cetera, from uh, the CDC as they scrambled last year to change the definitions of vaccination and vaccine. Because they, they saw this, the evidence is actually coming out in public that these injections are uh, are not providing either, uh, they're not preventing transmissibility, immunity, or infectivity. And of course, they knew that all along. These things they knew were yeah. medical, medical treatment and gene therapy from the get-go. There was no intention at all for these things to be, to provide immunity right. ever. Right. So, so here's the conclusion that the win- winning this case, prevailing in this case, and getting that judicial determination that the injections were not vaccines. Think of the consequence of that after the diatribe that we've heard over the last 18 months, these injections are safe and effective. Yeah. And they're neither one. Right. And that all of those statements were deceptive practices. Intentionally deceptive promotion. Intentionally deceptive medical practice. Yep. Well, that's exciting. Sounds like you're making some headway there. Yeah. 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 So um, I'd love to... um, you know, get some help from you on this, this supplement issue to make people aware of this and kind of fight back. Two things going on with supplements that I think people should be aware of. One, the government, you know, our current administration is trying to get supplements under the FDA so that supplements would have to be yeah. approved the way drugs are. Right. Um, two real big problems with that. Drugs are currently approved by the FDA and they're the third or fourth leading cause of death. They're killing people every single day. Vioxx killed over 60,000 people before we took it off the market. One drug killed over 60,000 people. That drug was approved by the FDA. So something is wrong with the process. On the other hand, how many people a year die from supplements? You almost can't get the yeah, number. It, 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 it's, yeah. it's entirely possible that in some years, nobody dies from supplements. That's how low the numbers are. You can't even get them. They, they don't even really exist. There were some cases, and I, I remember some, Fen Fen um, killed some people with yeah. some heart issues. 
they took it off the market though. We didn't need that we didn't need an FDA approval process, which clearly didn't work for Vioxx and it killed 60,000 people. When we did have kind of a rogue supplement, it didn't even kill thousands. We weren't even in the thousands with no, this. I, I think it was on the strength and it was like on the order of 12 people. I it, mean, it was, right, uh, right. It was, it was ridiculously kind of, low. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And, and they pulled it off the market. Oh, okay. It killed people. Pull it off the market. I'm okay with that. Um, we don't need the FDA to approve supplements. They have a horrible track record. The other problem with that will become we will put the majority of the supplement companies out of business because they can't afford this kind of testing. Yes, that's a huge issue. And that is a major issue because the FDA, the FDA has not even established an objective measurement by correct. which they want to determinations and they can make that measuring stick so expensive that no small company would be able to compete with say for instance i don't know pharmaceutical companies uh, to develop here's here's my point guess who is buying up all of the supplement companies exactly big corporations pfizer owns um caltrate emergency and centrum Three big supplement labels. Those are owned by Pfizer. So what what will happen if these laws go through is the supplement industry will be completely taken over by the drug industry and it will be a disaster. Like I say, we have not we have not deviated. This country has not deviated from its origins of being run, bankrolled. Financed by by drug companies. By drug, let's just call them drug dealers. Yeah, drug dealers. Yeah, they're drug dealers. Let's just call them what they are. They're drug dealers. And now, now the answer to all those drugs, which is just good nutrition and supplements, are food. Supplements aren't drugs; they're food. Now, that's probably how that's why we shouldn't have the Food and Drug Administration. They should be separate. But that's how the FDA is going to take this over, because they're going to say we have to regulate it like food um, and we won't have these good options anymore. These these supplements that Pfizer owns, these are pure garbage. This this is junk. This is the worst stuff on the market. Yep. Most of it, yeah, most of it's sugar. Yeah, it's, it's all or, garbage. Uh, variations of, right. It is garbage. Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, I can tell you that there's a, there's a corporate, uh, a, a COVID Consumer Protection Act, a federal act. Not too many folks are aware of this. The, the COVID Consumer Protection Act, which now makes it a crime. Uh, and there's, there's some prosecutions going on right now against chiropractors and other uh, um, naturopaths for selling zinc. Uh, yeah. Zinc. Yep. Um, NAC is a big the, one they're you know, coming with after. The yeah. With the, you know, the violations of, uh, of the COVID Consumer Protection Act. Oh, is, uh, I mean, th- those fees and probable jail time are just enormous. Yeah, right. Daily fines right. is something on the order of $17,000. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, for, uh, and we're talking about vitamins. small practitioners here. Yeah, yeah. This is a tough single, business single, to make it in. Single man shop. Right, yeah. 
Yeah. So, all right. So I, I, I'd love to, you know, going forward, kind of make this, you know, kind of one of our projects that we stay on top of this and help people fight okay. back against these. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Well, uh, anything else you want to throw out there today? We ready to wrap this up. Well, we can wrap it up, Kevin. I really appreciate your support. I, we've got uh, maybe one of the next shows as well on the on the cardio miracle front. We can talk about the, uh, how it upregulates pancreatic beta cells that actually uh, are you know, the controlling cells that produce insulin. Oh, uh, interesting. Benefits of, benefits of cardio miracle that we have on the latest research on looks like the ability to uh, to, to stem a transition from pre-diabetes to full-blown diabetes. Interesting. I do so, want to talk about that because I, yeah. going back to drugs and drug commercials, I recently heard a drug commercial that kind of caught my attention because I had never heard of this condition before. I'm very familiar with it. I just didn't realize it had a name and now we actually have a drug for it. Um, they're pushing something now called pancreatic insufficiency syndrome or something along those lines. Mm. And what Mm. it tells me is that the pancreas just isn't functioning the way it's supposed to be. It's not putting out enough insulin. It's not putting out enough pancreatic enzymes. That's just poor nutrition. Mm -hmm. We know that. That's just the diet and poor nutrition. But they have a drug for it now. And instead, if we just give somebody the proper nutrition, their pancreas will function just fine. So, yeah, that'd be an awesome topic to talk about. Yeah, I'd be happy to share that research. Excellent. Excellent. We'll do that. Oh, and I can announce as well that that, that, uh, Cardi Miracle's science on uh, the peer-reviewed article, which has gone, which is finished at the end of and completed the peer-review process, now will be published within the next couple of weeks on Cardi Miracle's um, effect on atherosclerosis. And it will include the statement, I think I've mentioned this before, but it will include a statement that it, that, uh, that it stops atherosclerosis and causes its regression. Excellent. And wow. That, and that's coming out in a, in a, in a major top-level uh, peer-reviewed medical research magazine. That's journal. impressive. So we have to pass, yeah, be happy to pass that on Yes. Yeah, I'd love to oh, see that. One other thing, here I am, just I'm just jumping all kind of end notes here. You mentioned <laughs> the, the, the creature from Jekyll Island. I was with G. Edward Griffin, who wrote that book uh, over the weekend in Indianapolis. Really? Oh, wow. And I, yeah, and actually spoke spoke at his conference, the Red Pill conference there in Indianapolis. And I'd be happy to share a couple of links of presentations there on a couple of points that we've addressed today, the origins, the, the actual history of America, and uh, I'm sure a couple of links, Kevin, maybe you could post those out and get them to your, yes. uh, to all the wonderful tribe members who have a little bit of time to listen to some fabulous information that will empower them. Excellent. Yeah, get that over so, to me and I'll get it posted. Will do. All right. Kevin, uh, God bless you. Well, Stanford, thank you so much and uh, appreciate everything you're doing for us and looking forward to a lot more. So, Um, Thanks again. We'll do this again next week. All right. We will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always 
do the hard work and master the journey.